If you're, if you're new with us, this is week three in a series called Breaking Idols. And the first week we talked about, you know, how do you identify an idol? What is an idol? Why are we so, so susceptible to idol? Kind of laid out the framework for what the Bible, Scripture talks about when it refers to idolatry. And then the second week we talked about figuring out where it is. What, what are our idols? You know, why are they so deep? What human need are they connected to? And then therefore, why, do, why are they so hard to get rid of? And I said, this week, one of the things we we're going to be talking about was how do you actually kick an idol out for good? How do you replace our passion for an idol? Something that we think will get us the good life we want. How do you get that out permanently? And one of the things I said, and I've said this in other sermons too, obviously, is to replace it with something better, namely God himself. You can replace it with something God produces, but oftentimes that won't be permanent enough. You need to accompany the thing God produces with God himself. God himself is meant to be the one we look to for our provision. And when he becomes our provider, his ways become our ways, and our idols have to find alternate lodging. Now, the, the way I want to talk about this is, um, is an illustration that I heard John Piper use some years ago that I found really helpful. And that was the two different visions of the world, one being a microscopic or microscope-based vision of the world, and the other being a telescopic vision of the world or a telescope-based vision of the world. Um, and that is... And I don't mean to offend all the entomologists out there because I like looking at stuff under microscopes and my brother studies insects and stuff. So don't, don't take this the wrong way if you're a biologist. I'm not saying physicists are superior. All I'm saying is this. is fundamentally speaking, um, or microscopes um, make the authentically tiny look artificially big for vision purposes. That's what a microscope is for, Right? The whole reason you have one of these guys is so you can take something you really can't see in detail with the naked eye, right, and pump up its size so that optically, artificially, it looks bigger so that you can study it, right? But fundamentally what it does is it makes something small look bigger. Something that authentically is, is really tiny, but it looks bigger because of the perspective you have through the microscope, right? Now, the, the telescope does just the opposite, right? It takes something that artificially looks tiny— because of distance, and it pulls it in so it is more sensibly large. You can see what you couldn't have seen before. Something that was a pin drop becomes something large enough that you can begin to see some detail. It takes something that is artificially tiny and makes it authentically big. Does that make sense? And what I, what I, what I want to say, and I'm, of course I'm stealing this from Piper, and Piper got it from the Bible, is that what sin ultimately does— what I have for the last couple weeks been calling in relationship to what the Bible calls it, the flesh. That is, the part of us that is self with a capital S that does not see the world as Jesus being supreme, but sees us as supreme and our desires and wants as supreme. And therefore accumulates idols for itself to, do, to fulfill them however we think is safest, is like a microscope. It is the, the, the inner means by which we take something that is not big— but because of our, our sort of out-of-kilter desires and our bent understanding of the world, we put it under the microscope of our flesh and we look at it and it looks big. Something that otherwise would not be particularly impressive, that's the mouth of a honeybee. It's what's on this slide. Something that normally would not look very impressive, something that wouldn't catch your eye, something that wouldn't look big enough to be worthwhile, to focus on too much in terms of providing for you, um, suddenly becomes something that looks big. It looks like it has more substance than it does. 
in terms of its size. And that, that's what the flesh does. It takes money, which is a good thing, and it makes it look like the biggest thing. It takes companionship with a particular individual or somebody from the opposite sex, and it, it magnifies it so that it looks like everything. And so therefore, it can take things that are perfectly good, your children, your work, your calling, your ministry, your football team, your whatever. It can take something that's perfectly good and magnify it so out of whack that it becomes everything to you that it can become an idol because something that was meant to be under the lordship of Jesus and have whatever space it should normally occupy begins to take over your allegiance. It's because you have a microscopic view of the world because you're looking through the lens of the flesh. And it's not, it's not going to be enough to just put this away. You can't put away the microscope. You have to take up the telescope. That is, you have to not just take your eye out of this eyepiece. In order to really be transformed in the breaking of our idols, we've got to put our eye to this one. We have to figure out how do you put your eye to something that will pull in something that would, nor- to, the, to our normal sight, be so obscure that it wouldn't do anything to us. Other than a little bit, like if you've gone outside on a clear night or, or if, you, if you're like, you like to go hunting like me and you go out when it's still really dark and on a clear night, you can just see everything. And you'll go, wow, that's incredible. But it goes away and you forget it pretty fast. <clears throat> but there's something about looking at the stars through a telescope that could make an eight-year-old not really care anymore about looking at bug heads through a microscope. It, it, because of the grandeur of it, when you, when you think, oh, it's not just that there's a bug head right here, but there's this huge planet out there. There's this, there's this galaxy out there that, like, when I look at all the stars, I'm just seeing a tiny, 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 tiny piece. But if I just turn my, I can see a galaxy bigger than all the stars I can see. It's, and it expands their world. It expands, it takes the house they live in that just has windows, and it puts in skylights, and, and they live a totally different life. It lets in a totally different— kind of light, and it changes the reality that they live in, and it'll change the reality that you live in. And the, the theological term that Christians have used for centuries in relationship to this, and you may hear people talk about this, is the glory of God. The glory of God. That's a religious word that tends to go in one ear and out the other, but it is the backbone of Christian transformation. The absolute backbone of Christian transformation is you and I getting in our minds because it gets in our eyes through the eyepiece of a telescopic view of reality where we can see something of the glory of God. And when that happens, everything else just gets displaced. And your idol just doesn't have the bite it used to have. It just doesn't have the bite anymore. It doesn't have the ability to hold you like it used to have because you not only recognize that you are looking at it through the wrong lens, you recognize it isn't what it claimed to be and there is something better to infatuate your mind's eye. And therefore, when we talk about breaking idols, to put it within this sort of word picture, you could say it this way, that um, we break our idols 
by putting aside the microscope and taking up the telescope. That work has to, it's not just we put aside the microscope. We have to put it aside in order to do something else. And if you stop short, if you only do the work of trying to get rid of sin, you will not succeed long term. And whatever righteous actions you put together will ultimately be taken captive by self-righteousness and fear. Because they're not, they're not motivated by the glory of God. And so it can, it can never work. Even if you change irreligious behaviors to religious behaviors, those religious behaviors will be taken captive by self-righteousness and fear because they're not fueled by the gospel. They're not fueled by the glory of God. And they will always just become another idol. Because only the glory of God can push out competing idols. So the very practical question needs to be, um, okay, I get the metaphor, but what's the literal meaning of the metaphor? If you say we have to take up the telescope, what is the telescope, right? What is it? Like, what, what do we, what do I do? Do I, I mean, there is no Jesus telescope in the lobby that I can look through and see God and go, oh, you're right, that's actually pretty cool. So how, how do I drill into this, Nick? What, what do we do? And the answer to that is, getting a little ahead of myself here, um, is that the gospel is the telescope. That is, the gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit. So when we believe in Jesus, God gives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reawakens our heart. The Bible says it takes out a heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh. It does something to our inner being. And then God's Spirit in that reawakened, regenerate part of our inner life that's going to fight against the flesh the rest of our life— looks at, wants to see Jesus. It needs to see the glory of God. And so the Spirit turns us to the gospel. That is, Jesus born, living, teaching, showing, dying, and rising. That story, that revelation, that it, the Spirit turns that new life, that it's, the Spirit's created in us by faith, and it points our attention to Jesus. And by means of that, we see the invisible God. And we can become sensible of the glory of God, and then we can go, oh, I think I see it. There's a number of passages just in Colossians. I've been kind of camping out in Colossians for this series. Um, in Colossians 1.5, it says this, that he, in, this, in that case, in that verse, it then turned, he is Jesus in that case. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. And you, now, it's really easy to read over that and go, oh, yeah. The, do you see how it's an intentional oxymoron? He is the picture of the invisible one. You see, he's saying something pretty profound there. He's saying, the one who, by other mechanisms of sight, you cannot see. You can, you can try to be spiritual all you want and come up with different ways to sort of, sort of access spiritual truth and see. He says, listen, God is invisible, okay? He's invisible. You, you can't see the invisible God unless the invisible God creates something by which you can see him. Therefore, he gives Jesus. Jesus is the image, the picture, the revelation of the invisible God. It is the only—I mean, he's claiming here, he's the, it's the only way to see what God is really like. Right? In 2.9, the next chapter, he says— 
For in Christ, what does it say? All the, let's say it together, fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is head over every power and authority. And then, actually just before that, in verses 2 and 3, it said this, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have all the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the what? The mystery of God. See, it's just a different metaphor. It's exact same point. God is fundamentally a mystery to humanity. We don't get him. We, we're trying to figure things out. We, we come up with clues, but we can never Sherlock the thing enough to put it all together and go, I got it. It was that guy in that room with the candlestick. We, it doesn't happen. You just end up, it's this n- mystery novel that never ends. And you get this clue, but then you get this counter clue, and there's all this. And he says, no, it's because there is a mystery to God, but that mystery is revealed in one thing, namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see the point? And so it is in the story of Jesus that is the way to see the size, the weight, and the magnificence of God. There's, there's this book um, I read some years ago by David Wells called God in the Wasteland. And one of the things he argued about Christian faith, particularly in the United States of America, as he said, it is, America is not becoming less religious. It's not becoming less religious. Church, um, church attendance and church membership are up. They're up from the 40s. They're up from the 1770s. They're up from the 1850s. The United States has never been more religious than it is right now. You say whatever you want. You go out and you look at the real data. We've never been more, we've never been more churchgoers than we are right now. The secularization thesis is false. But here's what David Wells says. He says, but here's the problem. God is present in the mind of the American Christian, but he is weightless. He is weightless in the mind of the American Christian. That is, that, that it's, it's, it's sort of like, yeah, he's Lord, but Lord doesn't really mean master. You know what I mean? It's, it's this idea that, yes, God is there. Um, Christian Smith and a sociologist called it um, moralistic therapeutic deism. God sort of up here. He kind of wants me to do good things. He's going to do wonderful things for me and to me, whether or not I do the moral things he likes. But he's sort of a general cloud of goodwill, and I'm going to do whatever I want. And that's sort of how this all is going to work, and it's going to work out just fine that way. And Wells basically says, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. That is a world in which God is weightless. And what I'm saying is, is that when we see the glory of God in Christ, we begin to realize that God is serious business as well as deeply loving. We begin to see all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, not just the ones that we concoct based on portions that we particularly happen to like. Does that make sense? It's not just the fact, I'm not, because here, here's the thing, lots of people go, well, you know, religion's all good as far as it goes. I mean, you, have you heard people talk like this? You know, re, you know, religion, it should be like a twelfth of your life. It's, it gets this little pie, and it's important to know that God is out there, and it keeps people generally moral, and it, it gives us something to say to young people why they shouldn't do certain things, and it gives us something to say to old people when they're sick and dying, and to console ourselves at funerals. But it's really should be this slice, and you get it out of there, you become a fanatic, and you become this kind of ridiculous person, and everybody knows wacky people like that. And what we need to recognize is that, that is, there's nothing biblical about that at all. There's nothing Christian about that. There's nothing—there's not—Jesus knew nothing of that. 
nor did any of the early church, nor did any Christians, until they got rich. And therefore, the, having a telescopic view of the glory of God through the gospel, is, it, it, the, the idea is that I'm not trying to get you to believe in God. That's not the point. Most of us believe in God. Most people out there believe in God. I'm trying to help you see that we could believe in the God that's really there, like he actually is, with the kind of weight on us that is actually there, that is not so much crushing as crushing us into freedom. And you, you know when this happens. Like, I don't, know, have you, I don't know if you've ever hiked mountains, but when I was a wilderness leader— we would hike up, and sometimes we'd let some of the, like, high school athlete kids run on ahead a little bit. And um, they, sometimes they'd come back and be like, I think we're at the top. And I'm like, okay, well, what did you see? And they describe what they saw, and I knew it wasn't the real summit. If you've ever been mountain climbing, you know that it looks like you're getting to the top like eight times before you get there. And so you're like, oh, I think I'm there. And you're, you're exhausted. You're like, oh, finally. And then you realize it goes up again, you know? And so they'd keep coming at the world almost there. And then I'd say, well, what'd you see? And they wouldn't explain what the top looks like. And I'd be like— we're not there yet. And you see, it's like that. You can, say, you can say to a seasoned Christian that you might know, you'd be like, I think I see the glory of God. And then, and then, and then you talk about, how, you know, how you treat your spouse or, you know, what's happening in your life. If, if there's joy and peace, any of that. And you're kind of like, no, 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 no Christianity isn't really working for me. But I think I see the glory of God. And the seasoned Christian would be like, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you know, you haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen it yet. Because if you'd seen it, you, we wouldn't have you having this conversation. We wouldn't have this, this my spouse isn't making me a happy conversation. We, we just wouldn't be having it. It's not that your spouse isn't a jerk. It's just we wouldn't be having this conversation if you had seen the glory of God. It wouldn't be, it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be happening. Because this conversation doesn't happen when you really see it. But if you don't see the real summit, then all of a sudden, guess what happens? You feel more tired, don't you? All of a sudden, you, you feel like you can't go on any further. It just— there's no motivation. And God has not left us without motivation. He's just only left us one means of motivation, and that is to see his glory through a telescopic view of his grandeur that the invisible God would be seen in Christ. And that is the only thing that can long-term displace idols and undo sin. Okay, so then, then this question has to come up. Okay, Nick, well then, what precisely do I do? Like, how do I, even if you say Jesus, okay, great, Jesus, great. How, how do you do it? Like, how do you actually look at Jesus in such a way? How do you actually see the invisible God in Jesus? Well, I mean, obviously the short answer is you're going to have to learn something about him. There's no shortcut to this. It's going to take mentoring, or it's going to take reading, or it's going to take study. It's going to take something. It's going to take coming to church all the time, you know. Um, but let me, let me dr drill down into two things, okay? How, how do we see the invisible God, the, hid, the hiddenness of God in Jesus? The first one is that Jesus' life makes visible the invisible identity of God. Now, here, here's what I mean by that. Let's look at this. This is the passage I read this morning. He is, this is Jesus now. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, right? So everything that's important was made by Jesus. 
All things were created by him and for him. So it came, they came out of him, but they're for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, right? He is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have— you see what he's saying? He even, even in becoming a human being and dying and raising, it just was another way in which he became supreme in just one more thing. Because he's supreme in everything. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased. Pleased. That means ple- it pleasured God. You need to think about God that way. Does God get angered at sin? Yes. Is he pleased to freely give to you and me a vision of his glory, a way of salvation? Yes. That all of his fullness would dwell in him. Right? In Hebrews 1.3, so, so it says in verse 15, the, he's the image of the invisible God. In verse 19, it says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. In Hebrews 1.3, it, it says this even more starkly. It says, the Son, that's Jesus, and the Son is the radiance of God's glory. You see how that works? He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Do you see how that fits into this? He is the radiance of the glory. He's the, that's how you see glory, right? Through radiance. You see light by what it radiates, right? And he is, in terms of the image, how close an image is he? He is the exact representation of his being, right? Now, okay, now think about this. C.S. Lewis once said, I'm not a Christian because I can see God. I'm a Christian because through Christ I can see everything else. You see, um, it's very difficult before you see Christ as he is and as he displays the glory of God. You go out into the natural world and what happens? It's confusing. It's confusing, isn't it? Because you can go to the Grand Canyon, you can go to the mountains, you can go to wherever. um, A windswept winter lake, and you can say, um, that's beautiful, right? That's beautiful. And, but, but then you can see uh, deer hit by cars on the side of the road rotting, and you can see, you, you can see trees that have died, and you can see the, the effects of hurricanes, and you can look at the destructiveness and things like, and death in the natural world, and you can say, that's ugly. So what is God like? You see? It's, it's, it's not—it needs an interpretive principle. Once you get the interpretive principle, it might, it might work. But before you know it, it's kind of—you look at the natural world, and you're not really sure what to think about God, right? But does the Bible say that the natural world tells us nothing about God? No, it doesn't, right? If you look in, for example, Psalm 19, what does it say? The heavens declare the glory of God. Right? You see that category again? Glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they what? They pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Right? You don't have to translate creation into the languages of people groups, do you? It's just there. Every language understands it the same. It's— but— But when you get to Romans 2 and it discusses why the human race is accountable to God merely through natural revelation, it doesn't say that all things about God's glory can be known through creation. It says this. It says because, it says because of creation and because of conscience in the heart of human beings, people should know enough about God to know that he exists 
and that we should be thankful toward him. And that's it. And that simply on the basis of the, the reality of God's existence and because of creation and his, that we should be thankful to him, that's sufficient for the work of condemnation because we don't, because of creation, revel in God's existence or in being thankful towards God because of creation. We don't do that. So everyone, just on those two realities of creation, are entirely condemned, and that's all that's necessary for the condemnation of human beings, Paul says in Romans 2. But it's not enough for redemption. It's not enough to know God. God is still a mystery. God is still invisible. He is still the unseen God. You cannot put the mystery down on the basis of the stars. You can't do it. It's not, enough is not there. And so what scriptures teaches God did is that he then comes around. So he gives a creation up front and it confuses us, but it ought to teach us something. And he comes around and he, he gives a law and he gives revelation. And then he comes in Christ and he, he, he shows through Christ who the creator is. And then through Christ showing the creator, what do we get? The creation. That's what happens, you see. And Jesus does that. The creation doesn't do that. The creation teaches about Jesus. Jesus comes and he shows the exact representation of the creator, right? Hence, the firstborn, he created, all things were made by him and for him, and this is what it's like, and he's supreme over all of it, and you can see all the ugliness in nature you want to see, but what you need to know is that God created all these things good, and he owns them all, and whatever is allowed in his supervenience over those things, he is still Lord over them, and they are still grand to us and are, and we should know enough already to know that he exists and are thankful, but now we can know that he is the supreme one over all things and that all that ugliness we see in nature is part of what? Through Christ, what is God doing? Reconciling all humans to himself? Is that what it said? It's not what it said, is it? The, the, scripture, the scripture said recon, reconciling all things to himself so that when you get to Revelation and redemption is complete, is it just God hovering with humans and angels and something in this sort of expanse of cloudiness? No. There is a recreated heaven and earth in which there is a renewed creation. How much of it is recycled and how much of it is new? I do not know. But it is there because God has reconciled not just people to himself, but all things. And so, you see, do you see how the creation was a mystery? The creation was a mystery. It's a mystery to us. You just talk to people trying to be spiritual on the basis of nature alone. And what do you have? You, you, generally, you've got confusion. And it was when, when, when God said, okay, I'm going to give you Christ, the exact representation of my being. In him, you'll see the exact representation of the creator. And when you understand who the creator is, that he's also the redeemer, then, what, then you will get back and you'll be able to understand in this point in time and in what's going on in the creation. And you get everything. Just, don't you see? You get everything. You don't just get salvation. You don't just get Jesus. You get everything. You get creation too. You understand the world you live in. You understand how you can be so filled with joy at its beauty and its grandeur and its goodness and it's cut through the heart at the ugliness. And it's still going to be ugly and beautiful, but you're going to get it, and there will be a peace inside of you because Christ has telescopically brought in the glory of God, and it will do something inside of you that will cause your creation idols to die. And that's just one example. We could, that's just creation. And that's the example used in this passage. You could go through everything in human life and say, the thing by itself is confusing. 
But then God comes and gives us Christ. And then we see that God is like this in relationship to that thing, and I get that thing back too. You could do that with parenthood. You could do that with spousehood and family formation. You could do that with sexuality. You could do that with money. You could do that with calling. You could do that with how people ought to live in communities with each other. You could do that with just about everything. Because it is through Christ, it's through his life and his teaching and his service and his showing and his death and his resurrection, through all of that, he shows us the character of God. And as you look into the character of Jesus, you will see more about the character of God. There's a whole bunch more we could say about that that we're just not gonna right now because I got ahead of myself. Two, Jesus' death reveals the hidden passion of God. So Jesus' life reveals his identity. His death reveals his passion. That is, that although Jesus' existence teaches us what God is like, his death supremely reveals God's aims. And that is to destroy the one thing that is destroying everything. And in doing that, redeeming everything else. And over and over again in Scripture, there's, there's, there's this big picture about all the things God is doing, right? All these things God is doing. But it all comes, it all traces back and traces back and traces back to the one thing that's destroying everything. And in the Bible, what that is, whether you like it or not, whether it's holistic enough for you or not, the thing it is in the Bible is the forgiveness of sins. That is, the taking away of the very real moral debt and condemnation and punishment and death we really deserve, the taking it away through the death of Jesus and the condition of faith and putting it away forever and freeing us from that. And from that comes everything else. Listen to a couple of these passages. Colossians 1, 12 to 14 says this. Um, We're giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you Right? These are all the results of this, right? Quali- what has he done? He's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. That's good, right? That's an effect. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. That's an effect in whom we have redemption. We've been bought back from a slavery. That's an effect. That's good. And how did that all happen? Why? Through the given, but we've been given redemption. How did that happen? The forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, 20-23. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile, what, restoration of relationship, right? To himself, right? What is God doing through Christ? He wants to restore the relationship between you and himself. That's the point, right? To himself, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He wants peace, right? Relational peace between you and him, between me and him, between him and all things that have been torn away and are spinning out of control and are broken and bent in the world that he made for good. You, once you were alienated from God, you see they're reconciling the relational bit here? You were, you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by how? By Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and what? Free from accusation. Well, what kind of accusation? Guilt accusation. It's a legal term. It's our sins. We were self-condemned, right? Or 
this passage. What does it say? When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, right? You committed sins and what? By very nature, you were a sinner. When you were in that place, you were dead. But then what happened? What does it say? God made you alive with Christ. How did he do that? He forgave all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away by nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, that is, the accusers. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Now think about that. What is a crucified person? A public spectacle, right? A crucified person is a public spectacle. What were we going to be without a crucified one in our place in terms of this imagery? We were going to be the public spectacle, right? We were the one with guilt. We were the one who were—we were not forgiven. We were the one who were—we were dead. We were dead meat. We were to be nailed because of our sins, our real actions, and our sinful nature, that we are sinners. We were dead meat. We were to be the public spectacle nailed to the cross. And instead, God provided Jesus. And Jesus, the Son, equally provided himself. In the, because there is one, there's a, they're one in being, in essence, right? To be the public spectacle. Why? So that we wouldn't have to be the public spectacle and because our demonic accusers would then, they would become the one he would make a public spectacle of rather than us. And what was he accomplishing? The forgiveness of sins. Do you see how that's, that's the root of his very reconciliation with all of creation? With everything there is, it all comes back to the cross. It all comes back to God's aim to cancel the debt of sin and to destroy the nature of sin and to give the power of himself in the Holy Spirit to anyone who would believe. And then to give a vision of himself through Jesus that would displace the idols, that would kill sin, that would slay the flesh, that would transfix the mind on his glory that would unseat every idol that would make us ready to suffer anything needful because of the confluence of motivation that would rise up the strength and bravery of spirit that we would have because we would see something of the living God. The thing that through our sin had been made artificially small would become more like it really is. But the question we've got to, we've got to end with here is, is this, is that if, you, if you're like, yeah, that's right, Nick, yeah. Let me just ask you this. But do you, are, do you really feel that? The, the Puritans used to, word, used, to word, used to use the word sensible. Are you sensible of it? That is, does it come into your senses? Do you see it with the mind? Do you feel it with the heart? Does it affect the will such that new behaviors happen and begin to form themselves into virtues? Are you sensible of it? Are you, do you walk around sensible that you have been gloriously rescued? Are you, are you sensible of the fact 
that God has redeemed you, that has bought you back from the rightful slavery of debt that you were in? Are you sensible that you've been reconciled, that there was an irreconcilable brokenness? You were never going to get to speak to him again. I mean, and, and it, it, there were relational follow-ups everywhere, and, and through Christ, he brought you back to himself. He brought you back into the family. He, he's beginning to bring you back together with a whole race of humans that it is his will we live in harmony and love with, and that he's remaking that. Are you sensible of this? Are you sensible that you've been resuscitated? That you, are, you, are you sensible that you were dead? You were dead. I think it was Eugene O'Neill who wrote this play called Lazarus Laugh. I think you probably, it's an old play, probably not many people have heard of it, where there's this kind of, this, this, this joke where um, the whole premise of the play is how would you scare Lazarus after he was raised from the dead by Jesus? Right? So Caligula shows up and he says, you know, Lazarus, you're a Christian, I'm going to kill you. And, and Lazarus says, <laughs> You're a sweetie, you know? That's why we say that in the South. He probably wasn't Southern. Um, but you, you see the idea that it, r- people raised from the dead aren't terrified of death anymore. So what do you do to them? And nothing. I mean, you can't make them afraid. I mean, are you sensible that you were, that you and I, we, we were dead. We were dead. And a supernatural new life has come into us through faith in Jesus by God's power in the Holy Spirit. Or could in right now for you. It could happen right now. Let me tell you one quick story and we'll end. Um, years ago, I went to a, a service at a church and they were having like a ministry moment where somebody was giving their testimony. And this young girl got up there and she, she, was, she was like, hi, my name's Amy or something. And she said, um, for the last five years, I've been an exotic dancer. Which, of course, all the guys were like, oh, I'm listening. You know, it was, was there's sin in the church. And, and she said, she said, um, you know, I was an exotic dancer for a number of years. And she said, um, and then some people invited me to this small group. And I thought, you know, what the heck, it's not a church. Um, I'll go. And so she went to it, and they, you know, they read the Bible, and they did these studies or whatever, and she got to know these people. And she got to the point where she's like, you know what, I think I want to believe in Jesus. And so she did. And it, it, the penny kind of dropped that believing and following Jesus and exotic dancing might not go well together. It just not a good fit. And so she realized that and she said, I gotta do something else. And so, you know, this is back in the, you know, 90s or something. She, get a, she went and got another job. And so she, but she went to the place to say that she wasn't gonna be working there anymore. And she went to her boss and she said, listen, I'm, um, I've decided to believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian now. And it's Christianity discourages exotic dancing. And so I'm gonna be doing something else. And he said, okay, you'll be back. You'll be back. And she's like, no, I, no, I'm like, this is it. And she's like, he's like, no, you'll be back. There's lots of girls get religion. They're, they're always back. Once you get the attention, you can never live without it. You'll be back. You see, but you see the logic built into that? The logic is the idol has you. The idol has you. You're never going to give it up. You say you're going to give up the sin. Yeah, you'll give up the sin for a little while, but the idol has you. It has you until another attention comes in that's greater. It's the only way to break it. Only way to break it. And so she was trying to seek attention from Jesus. 
She's trying to see that God has given her all the attention she could ever desire. And just reforming a community of attention, of non-sexual, intimate love around her in this group she was part of. And she's trying to figure out what it would be like to feel rightly that way again. And to not seek the sinful, flattering, licentious, debauched attention in which she was fulfilling her need and desire to be appreciated and loved. And, and she realized that. And it is the only way, friends. It is the only way to get rid of all of these. Remember these? Remember the day when we wrote all these up on the board? They're all your idols, right? The only way these are ever going to go away is if you get a different attention source, a different source of power, a different kind of appreciation, a different calling, a different understanding of what a family is, a different idea of how you treat a spouse and what you need from a spouse. The only way these things die is when you stop looking at them through the microscope and you start looking at them through the telescope of the one who is in himself the glory of God. It says in 2 Corinthians that that is in the face of Christ Jesus. It's in the face of Christ Jesus. And the only condition of all of that, the first condition is faith. You have to believe. You have to believe in Jesus. You have to say, Jesus, I believe in you. And you just do that. You just do it. Right now. Do it right now. And then you, you recognize that the first step of that is to know this. It's a new kind of life. This gets put down. And this gets taken up. and you ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit that you could succeed at that work that he's called you to. Let's pray. Father, would you help us displace the power of sin by a real vision of how, how great you are? Would you help us to see that you are the truthful one you are the loving one. You are the, you are the one who is the creator of all things and is the firstborn even from among the dead. Would you help us to see your nature and would you help us to see your aims? That all of creation and all of your work can be brought back to a one great desire that you want to do in human beings. You want to forgive sins. And that through that you do all these other things that all flow necessarily always flow out of that work. And would you help people right now to be turning to you to believe in Jesus? And would you help us who profess faith in Jesus? Would you help us to act like it and feel it and to be sensible of it? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.